Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel is the masterful historical fiction novel about Thomas Cromwell, advisor to King Henry VIII. Mantel cuts through the history books to get to the lifeblood of the story of an often misunderstood man using vivid prose that brings history to life. Hello and welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite books. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and today I'm joined by Kim Sherwood, an author and creative writing lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. Kim's newest novel, A Wild and True Relation, has the tremendous distinction of a gushing review by Dame Hilary Mantel herself, who said that Sherwood's book is, and I quote here, a rarity. A novel is remarkable for the vigor of the storytelling as for its literary ambition. Kim Sherwood is a writer of capacity, potency, and sophistication. I mean, come on, right? In addition to that, this April, Kim's also releasing the first book in a new James Bond trilogy commissioned by the Ian Fleming estate. Kim and I had a wonderful talk about these different genres and what brings these iconic characters to life and why Wolf Hall is the best book ever. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We have a lot to cover here, but I really want to start with your newest release, A Wild and True Relation. I First, I want to ask you, when is it going to be released here in the States? Because I'm an extremely selfish person <laughs> and I'm dying to read this book and I can't pre-order it yet. So do you have any oh. idea when it's coming out in the States? I don't know. It's, it's oh. here in the, the UK on the 2nd of February. And for, for US listeners, please do order it from the UK. Will you tell our listeners what it's about? Sure. So it's feminist literary historical smuggling tale. It opens in 1703 on the night of the Great Storm, which was this storm here in the UK, which was so fierce. People thought that God was wiping out Britain. It, it, the wind spanned windmills so fast they caught a blaze. Cows ended up on roofs. It was it was really apocalyptic. So it opens during that storm as a smuggling captain called Tom West comes ashore to his lover's house, Grace. He believes that she's betrayed him to the revenue and they have a conflict which ends with him leaving her house in flames, her dead and him carrying her daughter out, who he raises as a boy aboard his ship. And the rest of that's all chapter one. <laughs> the rest of the book <laughs> is the consequences of that as Molly, Grace's daughter, grows up. She believes that Tom is this loving, heroic father figure. Uh, the, the the story follows her as she grows up and learns more about the past. And then that timeline is, I call it, interleaved with these sections with real life historical figures like Celia Fiennes and Daniel Defoe, Dr. Johnson and Hester Thrale, George Eliot and Charles Dickens, who visited or lived in Devon, where the novel takes place, who pass on these rumours, these stories of Tom, Grace and Molly over the centuries. And, and together they're trying to solve the, the mystery of, of Molly's life. And I've been writing it for 14 years now. Wow. So it's, it feels pretty amazing. It's coming out into the world. You chose the name Orlando for her pseudonym? So she's born Molly mm -hmm. and has to live disguised as a boy aboard Tom's ship. And Tom gives her the name Orlando, which is my nod to Virginia Woolf's Orlando. He's a character who lives over centuries and changes gender. Molly is 
in lots of ways, the book is investigating two central ideas, gender and genre, and how those things interact. The The history of the novel is in some ways a gendered history, read two ways. It's often been reported as a male form invented by men. Daniel Defoe is typically called the first novelist. But there's another story, a kind of hidden story, where you could just as easily say that Afro Ben is the first novelist and that the, the first novelists were women who wrote historical fiction and they were edited out of the story. So with this book, I hope to illuminate their contribution to our culture and bring them from the margin into the centre where I think they belong. Now, your other branch, I guess, of writing speaking of gender, <laughs> is sort of about the alpha male of really all modern alpha males, James Bond. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a James Bond fan all of my life. I've always loved adventure fiction, adventure stories, action. And it was always my dream to write James Bond. And I'd say it to anybody who would listen to me. And one day I I said it to the right person. <laughs> I said it to my agent who <laughs> said, you should do that in this very serious voice. And you know, I was half joking, <laughs> but uh, it came around, you know, the, the Fleming estate were looking for a new writer because Anthony Horowitz's tenure had come to an end. They wanted somebody who was a real fan. And my agent said, you know, here's an opportunity. Could you write to them, explain your love for it? And and I wanted to kind of evidence that I was a fan because that's really important to them. You know, this is their, their family sure. legacy. So I found this school report I'd written when I was 13. It was homework. You had to write about an author you admire. And I'd written about Ian Fleming. I'd made this whole booklet with flaps and pullouts. And so I scanned that and I sent it to the Flemings and I just said, you know, this would be this would be a, a dream come true. And, and here are my ideas. They liked my ideas. They liked my first book. And it all took off from there. And, and you're completely right that Bond is in many ways the, the sort of the archetypal alpha male. And when Ian Fleming started to write Bond, he said, I'm going to write the spy story to end all spy stories. And in some ways, Bond is the male hero to end all male heroes. <laughs> and I've always been really interested in that heroic archetype and what we celebrate in men versus what we condemn in women mm. and I think my love for Bond is partly out of that interest and in a wild and true relation it was an opportunity to kind of explore those ideas that was where you know the book began back back in my when I was studying for my undergraduate degree that was sort of what was on my mind I've never read a James Bond book. Are they considered mystery novels or are they adventure? What, what what genre would you call them? Well, they're spy fiction, which as a as a genre kind of really took form towards the end of the 19th, early 20th century. But Ian Fleming in many ways reinvented the genre by infusing it with elements of adventure fiction and by making the spy a professional previously spy stories, which had been these kind of classic adventures, they had featured an amateur hero, you know, that it would be a gentleman whose whose shoulder was tapped by the government, you know, as you're in Switzerland anyway, could you go get those secret papers for us? And Ian Fleming, who's, who was in intelligence in the war, made his hero a professional, a professional spy and with a license to kill. So the the ethics of it in some ways were shifted. And there's, there's different ways to write spy fiction, of course. John le Carre and, and Ian Fleming are very different writers, for example. But but Ian Fleming, I think, really invented that genre. And when you look at, say, even action films today, it, 
you know, I've heard Barbara Broccoli say, you know, they don't mind the competition from something like Mission Impossible because they invented the genre. And and I, yes. I think that's, you you can say that's a really fair cl- claim, I think. Given that your background with Bond is in the books and in all the novels, do you have a movie that you feel captures the literary sensibility the best? Or does one of the actors capture the the books the best or do you feel like they exist in absolutely different planes that's a really good question i think they they come closer at points in the franchise and they move further apart at points i think from russia with love which is my favorite book and my favorite film tonally are quite similar to each other and structurally as well and ian fleming's really interesting writer with, with structure he would often you know, withhold, for example, in in From Russia With Love, Bond is withheld from us for quite a while and that's played within the film. There's a there's a kind of caper to that film as well, a kind of, you know, they were borrowing a bit from Hitchcock. And I, and I think that captures some of the, the fun of the book as well. But there are later ones as well where it's almost come back around. So if you look at Casino Royale, although that's modernised and, you know, we we open quite near the beginning, Judy Dench is talking about 9-11. So I remember in the cinema thinking, oh, wow, this is our world, you know, almost being shocked by the modernity of it. I think the the tone of that film really captures the book because the book is about heartbreak and how Bond's identity is shaped by losing this woman who he loves and shaped after that all of his relationships with women. So I, I really felt like they they captured the essence of the book in that film. Mm. What kind of reader were you that you were writing, (laughs) (laughs) that you were as a child writing essays about Ian Flint? I always read in a huge variety and across genres, across forms. I, I was lucky that nobody told me that you had to be a fan of one thing or to that you sort of would pigeonhole yourself as a reader. And everybody, you know, I was really lucky that my my mom really encouraged reading. My granddad really encouraged reading. And uh, so did my grandmother. It, there was a lot of sort of love of books in our family and, you know, taken to the library at a young age and taken to the secondhand bookshop and just encouraged to get whatever interested me. So I would be reading James Bond and I would be reading romantic poetry and I would be reading uh, Primo Levi and just hoovering it all up and wanting to talk to people about it. I was desperate to talk to people about it. And I was always glad when my granddad visited because he was he was self-educated really, but one of the most educated people I ever met in terms of his love of language, his love of literature. He'd left school very young. He was he was an actor, George Baker. He'd left school very young and the school thought he was stupid. But he, in their words, but he'd come to England during the war and kind of struggled to get on at school with that system, but but loved literature, loved learning, loved poetry. And I was always glad when he'd visit because I'd say to him, you know, have have you read any Ben Johnson? What do you what does this poem mean? <laughs> what does this play mean? What do you know? And I'd and I'd love having these conversations with him. Have you read Walter Savage Landor? Is this as flirtatious as I think it is? <laughs> and he would always talk to me about those things. So yeah, I was always really grateful for that. What kind of reader are you right now? What where are your go-to genres? I suppose I the genres I visit most often would be broadly crime fiction, historical fiction, and literary fiction. Although I think in some ways genres aren't that useful as categories. 
because they can silo things out. But that those are sort of my most beloved, I guess. And it'll often be that I'm I I don't tend to keep up. This is maybe terrible to say, but I don't tend to keep up that much with contemporary fiction. You know, mm. like the big new book that's out. I'll often not have read it yet because I'm reading something from the 18th century <laughs> because it's inspiring me for what I'm writing. So I tend to be very led by whatever I'm reading will be led by what I'm writing. So I'm I'm searching for company. You know, Ian Forster said that we write in an echo chamber and I, and I think that kind of governs my reading because I'm I'm looking for a writer to be in dialogue with. Do you remember how you came across this book that we're talking about today, Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantle? So I first read Wolf Hall towards the end of my undergraduate degree approaching applying to my MA in creative writing. And I was I was writing A Wild and True Relation at the time, and I was searching for historical fiction that resonated with me. And I was searching for, I think, really a, a guiding light and a sense of permission for the kind of themes or, or language that I wanted to attempt. So to me, the reason I've chosen this book is because it was an epiphany reading this book. It was this is what prose can do. Mm. This is what fiction about the past can do. It was so alive. And so I so I read it then, and then I read it again when I was on my MA and I took a module in historical fiction. And I've actually, I mean, this is a this is a not a visual medium, so this will mean nothing to listeners, but I'll show you. I brought along my notes that I made for my MA just to kind of give you a sense of like what it meant to me. So for those listening, it's a big bit of brown wallpaper that I folded up so that I could have all of these different color-coded notes and brainstorm oh picking up characters together. And, you know, because I really was trying to map out what this book was doing. But I wanted to get inside it. I wanted to get inside its mechanics, inside its bloodstream. So that's what all of these lines are, kind of connecting up ideas of identity, ideas of power, ideas of death, of memory, of history, of language. I was so inspired. I wanted to kind of get it all down. And and I've, you know, I've kept this since then because it's, well, one, because I love the book, but also I think these notes are just a sort of momentum, I suppose, or a testament to just how inspired I was by Wolf Hall. You know, it was, it was an important moment in my development as a writer and as a person reading that book. Can you tell our listeners what it is about? So yeah, for for those who haven't read Wolf Hall, what are you doing with your lives? Get on with it. (laughs) It's not long. (laughs) It's very long. So Wolf Hall is about Thomas Cromwell, who might not be a household name to people outside of Britain, but growing up here in primary school, you would learn the story of you know Henry VIII and his six wives, and you'd learn the rhyme about who was beheaded and who was divorced. And you would learn that Thomas Cromwell was this thug and zealot and bully, and that Thomas More was this saintly thinker. And that was kind of the received wisdom. And what Hilary Mantel does in this book is she she turns it upside down. So she she in some ways reinterprets or rewrites history and gives us Thomas Cromwell as this modern progressive man who came from poverty and rose to be one of the most powerful figures if not the after henry 
in the UK and changed our politics, our relationship with the church, our laws. And the the first book, Wolf Hall, follows the sort of first section of that from his childhood on to Henry's divorce from Catherine. So it's about Cromwell versus Moore, really. And it, and it recasts Moore as this zealot, obsessive. And you, you have Henry in the middle and you have Catherine and, and Mary and Anne Boleyn in the middle. So it's about really, I think, history, memory, identity, power, the state played out through these real historical figures. It was really funny to me because I read Spare for the podcast the week mm. after I read Wolf Hall to talk to you. Oh, funny. <laughs> but there is no amount of money you could pay me <laughs> to be in one of these families and reading Wolf Hall and then reading Spare. Mm. It it has not changed. You know, these these power structures are still so relevant today. And I and I think that Hilary Mantel in in grappling with these stories, she is writing really about the heart of our country. And she always talked about how history isn't settled. Going over history isn't going over dead ground. It's animating the soil. It's bringing it to life because there's no one fixed version of event. There's just the accepted version of events. And you could see that in you know what I was saying about in primary school, learning of these two figures in now really the opposite way to how they're now conceived of popularly because of the success of Wolf Hall. So you see with the Wolf Hall trilogy how history can be rewritten and is rewritten by our interpretations of it if they seize the public imagination like this has. So many of us were so bored in history classes. And when yeah. you try, and, and I have a lot of Henry VIII related books, and when I try to pass them on to people, they think, ugh, you know, history is so dull. Yeah. What do you think is the magic of her writing? I think I think it's two things. Well, it's more than two, but but two comes to mind. The the first is the visceral, bloody nature of it. So Hillary often talked about how to be a writer. You had to she had this fantastic quote, and I'm gonna muddle it now, but it was something like you know, drink bone marrow and howl at the moon. You know, <laughs> she, she was this very embodied person and her writing is very embodied and and has this sense of pounding blood through it. So, you know, we have a line like, this is Thomas Cromwell thinking about his his wife who's just died. And he thinks, if I had seen your death coming, I would have taken him and beaten in his death's head. I would have crucified him against the wall. There's a visceral nature to that that makes grief corporeal and it gets us into the character's interiority and that's something that's so interesting and is one of the most kind of talked about points of this book so I I won't talk too much about it but the the point of view how we're so closely focalized through Cromwell to the to the point that we'll have he Cromwell to kind of distinguish the he's We're, we're so interior and yet Cromwell thinks of his heart as a private book. He thinks people shouldn't try and read it. This is somebody who, who in some ways, we're in his mind, but it's always looking out. It's looking out at the world. And his identity is made up of identities that he assumes. 
you know, he takes the cardinal's identity or or people presume things about him, about his childhood, and, and he goes with it. So this is at once a deeply interior character, but also a private character, and there's a muscularity to him and this this visceral nature. And the, the other thing I think is the way Hillary used language in this very self-conscious way. So it's it's not you, you can almost call it metafictional. Not that it's sort of wildly postmodern necessarily, but this is a book that's very aware of itself and aware of the power of language. So when you have a moment like Thomas Cromwell and Moore debating and they're talking about dictionaries and words and they say, you have to say some words, that's all, are just words. You know, they're they're kind of, they're, they're battling over definitions with each other and Cromwell thinks it's our dictionary versus his. And to me, that moment is really interesting because the word dictionary doesn't actually kind of arise until about 20 years later in, in the dictionary. But Hillary talked about in her wreath lectures how she she would give herself like a 20 year window. So she would look up when a word appeared in the English language. And if and if it was like 20 years later, she would think, OK, well, maybe it hadn't been written down yet, but maybe people were saying it and she'd right. let it slip in. And it's really interesting to me that in a moment where she's reflecting on the power of words to shape reality, she's also almost ducking under the wire of of the dictionary. I think she's showing us how fluid language is and how we have the power to create meaning. We have the power to create narrative in our lives and the narrative of history. So there's this bristling alive nature to the language that's constantly animating the soil bringing up the bodies and there's just a power to that you know it's like an electric current yes because by definition if the language is fluid then the history is fluid exactly and that's the great battle in wolf hall between Mm -hmm. Cromwell and Moore who's going to end up the victor here who's going to be listened to whose book is going to count and I think that what what Hillary did really was a gift for the genre, because, as I said, historical fiction is right there at the beginning of the history of the development of the novel form. It was it was written by women novelists. It was a kind of evolution of medieval chivalric romance. It evolved into the Gothic. It was using the past as a fantasy space to work out present problems. And it was then in some ways co-opted by by male writers. So if you look, for example, from the transition from Anne Radcliffe to Walter Scott, in, in Waverley, Walter Scott says the romance of the past is over. Now now he's in he's living his real life about about Waverley. So Scott's kind of saying to us, romance is gone, the 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 fictional, the the fantastical is the made up, the invented is gone. And and this is all going to be real now. And that's been interpreted critically as a kind of rejection of the the sort of evolution of historical fiction. And I think that that played a part that I'm not saying Walter Scott necessarily meant that, but that interpretation has played a part in how historical fiction has often been dismissed or derided as kind of women's fiction or escapist. This idea that oh it's not true it's somehow not real it's it's romantic it's a fantasy so m- historical fiction written by men has often been considered literary and important 
and written by women has often been considered romantic and frivolous. And I think what what Hillary does is kind of take that division and that derision and just sort of bang its head against the wall and and show <laughs> us how important this this genre is and how important it is when it's written by women. And you could see that, you know, when the book came out, I remember there was a review in The Guardian that said, Hilary Mantel has made a derided genre respectable again. She saved it from bodice-ripping romance, which, you know, is an insult to bodice-ripping romance, which is, you know, I, I think an insult to Georgette Hare and, and all who ride behind her. But I think that, um, for me anyway, one of the reasons this book is so important is because it showed people the power of this genre. Yeah. Now, have you read the other two in the, because it is eventually became a trilogy? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so it's a trilogy, and yeah, I read them as they as they came out. I read The Mirror and the Light in lockdown, which of course was a strange, you know, because that book is so much about being contained, and so to to, to read it when we couldn't go outside was was strange, but it also was a lifesaver. And I, you know, I, I heard a lot of people saying that just how grateful they were that it came out then especially because it is a big book. So we'll, we'll keep you company for a while. Now, I haven't read the next two. Are, are they both continuing with Cromwell? Yeah, that's right. So it's okay. it's Cromwell's life from start to finish. I mean, it's history, but I won't do spoilers just in case people don't know the history. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, she's she she won the Booker Prize twice, which is our major prize for literature, the only mm. British to have done so. And I really think that she changed literature. And, you know, we're... We're at a loss in some ways without her. Now, you have a personal connection to her? Yeah. So that's, I should have said, that's why I've been calling her Hillary, not just, <laughs> I don't know with all writers I love. But yeah, I was very lucky, very lucky to form a personal connection with her. So when my first novel came out, Testament in 2018, I was doing the kind of literary festival circuit. And one festival that I went to, Budley Salterton in Devon, which is where Hillary lived, and she was patron of the festival. She was running this day-long masterclass. And oh I bought my God. ticket. And I was so excited and nervous to be in the room with her. I I, I wrote down literally every word she said for <laughs> four hours, however long it was. And I... I, I didn't look down at my page because I, I didn't want to miss anything. I was just fixed on her. And so my notebook is like this weathered cliff of a margin, you know, because my handwriting <laughs> was going all over the place. But she was so wise and generous and just wickedly funny. And she was talking about the process of writing and she was doing it all, you know, for the benefit of the festival. That's why she was doing the event. And I really wanted to ask a question, but I was really nervous as well, just to speak in front of her because I just loved her so much. So I spent the whole four hours or whatever it was honing a question, you know, practicing. What will I say? <laughs> and, uh, and I love finally, hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> finally, at the end, I, you know, put my hand up and I asked my question, which was about the body and historical fiction. And she said, that gets to the heart of what historical fiction is. And I felt like my, you know, my, my blood was suddenly pumping in my brain. I managed to write down the answer. and. She she talked about how important it is to to know the the fabrics and the textures and the medicine and the scars and to get into your characters, to get into their bodies, to bring the time alive. And you know, I wrote it all down. And then afterwards, there was the signing queue. So I, I had my book ready to be signed and I was queuing up. And I also had my novel, Testament, in my bag. I really wanted to give it to her, but I was also really scared. I didn't want to impose or anything. So I, I, I got to the front of the queue 
And before I could say anything, she said, you, you've been luminous all day. And I hadn't done anything. <laughs> so but that was so kind that it kind of, I got my courage up. So I, I said, oh, well, you know, thank you so much because you're, you're my inspiration and I'm a writer. And, and she said, well, what have you written? And I said, well, I, I have my book here. I got it out of my bag, you know, so nervously. And I handed it over to her and she looked at it. And then she said, well, how will I get in touch with you? And I almost said, why would you want to? And then swallowed <laughs> back inside. <laughs> I said, well, I could give you my email address. So I wrote my email address down in the book. But I thought, I'm never going to hear, you know, Hilary Mantel has better things to do than email me. And then I, I got this email and I was just looking back through my emails before we spoke. I haven't actually looked at these since she since she died. But she she wrote me this email. And when her name appeared in my inbox, I just I squeezed my eyes completely shut and grabbed Nick's my husband's hand. I was like, oh my God, Hilary Mantel's name is in my inbox. And I started up a sort of pen pal relationship. And you know, she she was always so generous. She anytime I was in the newspaper, she would write to me and say, Well done, I saw you were up for this prize or I'm cheering you on. And anytime I had a question about a publisher or a cover, she would give me advice. She was so kind of open with her experience and her process. And I've heard this from lots of people that she was just she was so kind and so generous with her time and she had absolutely no reason to be that was just who she was. I think that was one of her gifts to to young writers and and that she wasn't beholden to do that, you know, but I think she really wanted to encourage people. And I wrote to her actually when I when I finished A Wild and True Relation, I finished it at Agatha Christie's house, Greenway in Devon, <laughs> which is <laughs> a weird sentence, I know, but they it's it's open to the public. It's operated by the National Trust and they let writers go and stay there in the attic for residency so I, I had a 10-day residency there and I finished writing the book after after at that point over a decade in the vinery I got to the end and I thought I, I, I just want to tell Hillary that I finished and I want to thank her for just the role she played in inspiring me in, in the book so I wrote to her and I said I finished and thank you for everything that you did and and she wrote back such a kind email I'm just looking at it here just kind of very very sort of kindly recognizing I suppose the I mean I I'm hesitating because I I'm not comparing what I've done to what she did but just the length of time it took you know so she so she she said you know I I know myself what it is like to sustain the effort when circumstances change all the time when you yourself change when technique evolves mm -hmm. confidence ebbs and flows and, and there was just an understanding in that 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 I found really touching and then she told me to rest and she said, you know, your, your body will react if you don't rest, which is a lesson I've not yet learned. Mm. And most, as we were talking about before we press record, just finishing another book and my body's saying, for God's sake, lie down. <laughs> uh, so that's a good lesson. And I, I, you know, I told you about finishing and then she, she told me about finishing the mirror and the light and just what the process was like finishing it. And she said that when she, the morning that she was going to write, what would be the last chapter she found that her picture of henry the eighth had fallen off the wall and just the you know I, I i really feel like this is a person connected to something divine and uh, you know she 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 talked about this book or, or or this trilogy being her life's purpose that she always knew it would be her kind of magnum opus and that she actually waited until she was in her 40s to start writing it because she felt like she needed the life experience before she could get into Cromwell at that 
age and time. So she just she shared with me her creative process and what it was like for her finishing it. And I was just so grateful for that. I was so grateful for that generosity and that openness and just the the light, you know, that she that she gave. And then and then, you know, when the book was ready to to send out, I was really nervous to share it with her. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and uh, I my my editor said, let's send and we just finished it. She said, let's send a very early proof because you know Hillary's very busy. So give her more time to read it. But that would have been a proof before it was copy edited. And you know, I said to my editor, if you think I'm gonna send Hillary Mantel a book that might have a typo, you have nothing coming. <laughs> out of your mind. Yeah. If there is a comma out of place. <laughs> so uh, we had a copy edited. And then sent it. And I was I was so so scared, you know, what she'd what she'd think. And then when she sent through those amazing words for the cover, I just actually cried. I just, oh, I'm sh- <laughs> that was my next question. Did you cry? I would have just wept. Yeah. I did just weep. And I was out, I was at work doing tutorials with students, and my editor called me up just in a break. So then I opened the door to the next student who, who looked aghast. <laughs> you know, losing her was such a shock for everybody. You know, everybody was talking about that because it really did just feel like we were in the middle of a conversation. I don't want to overstate. It was just a few letters over over the years, but it just meant so much to me and that she took that time and that she would reach out to me if she saw, you know, if she saw my name come up for a prize or something that she would reach out to me. And and, and I know that she did that for lots of people because she was she was just so, so generous. So I've been thinking a lot about her legacy and, you know, now that we don't have any more work from her she was somebody who believed in in presences in that way her presence lives on as well as her impact in literature and in you know the the book's coming out in a few days and you know I feel, feel excited and scared in equal measure but I sort of hear her voice in my head in some you know in some way I sort of every now and again I just say oh thank you Hillary when I see her quote on the cover you know I think it's it's kind of a blessing does having a personal connection to her change how you read her books or change your reaction to her books? I think so. Partly because, you know, not to not to sort of put myself in in her league or in a sentence with her, but just that there's things in our experiences, perhaps as writers, or it seems this way to me, that that are similar. I have a disability, and when I read her memoir and how she how she talks about her relationship with her own body and her relationship with pain, trying to find language through that. That that really meant a lot to me when I found that out and, and I read that memoir because I suppose it felt like good company, mm-hmm. <laughs> good company to be in, and that she was articulating something that I found hard to articulate to myself. So then having got to know her a little bit and and hearing about her work through you know ups and downs it gave me a sense of courage and a sense of how to look after myself in some ways I mean I guess I'm still trying to learn that but except for the rest yeah yeah (laughs) except the rest keep on oh but she talked you know often in her emails she would say you must look after yourself now and she would tell me how busy she was and what she was trying to cope with and and I guess it just felt like a lesson and probably one I'll spend a lifetime learning. But, and, you know, people might be listening to this and thinking, oh, poor writer, deadlines. <laughs> but, but it's, I guess it gave me 
a lesson in longevity and how mm. to think about yourself over the long term rather than a short term, the show must go on way. And having that personal connection. I'm so glad you had that. There's just nothing like good mentorship mm. Mm. from Absolutely. someone you trust. Absolutely. And I think that's the key thing. It's someone you trust. She really inspired that confidence. And I try and do that for for students, you know, as I'm a little bit down the, the road from them, because I think it, it does really help to have somebody who's been there before you and can say, not here's a roadmap, but can make you feel, I suppose, not alone. I think that's the key, because writing in some ways is a kind of solitary pursuit. And I think that's probably why a lot of writers do it, because we like being alone. <laughs> but, but for me, anyway, I also really like being part of a community. Mm-hmm. And to have somebody welcome you that much into their creative process and to make time for you is a real gift. And there's such a magic to the creative process as well that I think I think we forget sometimes that people who are creating art, that are creating the things that we do in our free time. Mm-hmm. There, there is, there is a divine to that. I think, and being allowed into someone else's process of that is incredible. Mm, absolutely, and I, I, I think one of the we were talking earlier about who, who, who I read now and and where I kind of gravitate. Certain writers become totemic. You turn to their books because you're looking for an answer, or you're looking for some company in your creative process and part of it is almost like jm barry we were talking about the creative process jm barry described it to play likened it to playing hide and seek with angels Mm. and i I think there is something to that and there are certain totemic writers who become those angels for you and you're you're kind of searching for them and when you find them you think oh this is the kind of writer i aspire to be so tell me what is on your nightstand right now. Well, I'm halfway through. I don't know if you've read any of the Sarah Paretsky, V.I. Wachowski mysteries. or oh, detective. I um, never have. Are they good? Yeah, I very much recommend. I'm probably butchering how to pronounce Wachowski, and I'm, I'm sorry if I am. But uh, yeah, Sarah Paretsky, for those who don't know, really pioneered female-led detective fiction. And I, I love her books. I love what she did with you know, bringing a female character center stage in that genre. Um, so I'm reading that at the moment because I'm writing, or I'm just finishing, it's it's due in a few days, the, she says nervously, the <laughs> second in the Double O trilogy. And I've been thinking a lot about main female characters and bringing women center stage. So I've been yeah looking to Sarah Paretsky for inspiration. Hang on. Are you telling us we're going to get a female bond? Is that what (laughs) Uh, you're... Did you just reveal that? No. No. James, for those who haven't read Double or Nothing, the first in the trilogy, James Bond is still James Bond. But the idea of the trilogy is that he's missing. So the start of Double or Nothing, which comes out in the States in April, April 11th, uh, it's called Double or Nothing. And at the start, James Bond is missing. And there's this kind of ensemble cast of other Double O agents who are looking for him and also trying to avert a climate catastrophe. But what that's allowed me to do is to keep Bond as Bond, because I love his character, I wouldn't want to change him, but also to bring in some new heroes. So to have to have female heroes, to have heroes from other backgrounds, 
with other kind of lived experiences. So that's been really exciting for me. But it's also a challenge, you know, because I'm operating in, as we were saying earlier, in a space that's in some ways dominated by male heroes. Well, I cannot wait to read this now. And I've never been a James Bond reader. Not not that I wasn't a fan. I just didn't know it. One of the kind of nicest things about the double O trilogy, you know, beginning and coming out is that a lot of people have been saying to me, and especially women actually saying to me, oh, yours will be the first Bond book I've read, which feels like such an honor. And, you know, I love Ian Fleming's writing. So if I can be a kind of gateway to people reading more Bond, you know, that's that. Yeah, that's very gratifying. I will admit I've had Wolf Hall. I have the entire trilogy on my shelf hmm. since they were all released. Right. But I've never read them. I am a book hoarder. <laughs> and so it was a delight to read this and I'm thrilled to talk to you about it. And I want to thank you for joining me today. Will you share with our guests where they can find your work? Absolutely. So Double or Nothing is coming out by from William Morrow on April 11th in the States. A Wild and True Relation is coming out with Virago here in the UK and, and listeners abroad can order it from here. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kim T. Sherwood. And I have a Substack newsletter, Girl with the Golden Pen, where I send out. It's a kind of window into my writing life. And I also run through that Zoom book club socials and meetups. And, oh, have fun. So, yeah, if anybody wants to listen to more of my inner monologue, <laughs> that's where to go. <laughs> Kim, this has been so fun. I want to thank you for joining me today. And I hope you will come back anytime you have a book you want to tell me about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Please. Bookworms, I would love to hear if you've read Wolf Hall and what you thought of it. Let me know over on Instagram at Best Book Ever Podcast. Links to everything Kim and I discussed are available on the show notes or at my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. Thanks for joining me today, and as always, I will see you at the library.